This morning's scripture text is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you have come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Father, our heart's desire now is that the gospel would come as the power of God unto salvation in this room, sustaining and preserving the faith of the saints and awakening faith in unbelievers. This is your great work, and I ask you for it in the name of Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit again as you have moment by moment in this service so far, calling out from us praises. Now call out from us hearing minds, understanding hearts, quickened affections, resolved wills, and create humility and brokenheartedness and submission to Christ and healing in body and emotion and mind and knitting marriages together, reconciling enemies, 
befriending the lonely, giving guidance to the perplexed, lifting up the downcast, and providing every real need according to your promise. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. May this moment of preaching be a moment of the fulfillment of that promise, I pray, through Christ. Amen. We believe that there are two ordinances in the church given by the Lord. The first is baptism, and it is unrepeatable. It signifies the entrance into Christ, a symbolic burial with him, and a symbolic rising to walk in newness of life. And the second is the Lord's Supper, repeatable, as often as you do this, not entering into Christ, but experiencing and enjoying and savoring and feeding upon Christ time after time after time, signifying what? That was last week's sermon. What do we mean when we eat the Lord's Supper? And I began the series last week giving you three meanings and... Today, I will mention three more and deal with one of them. And then in two weeks, I will do a third sermon on the Lord's Supper. Unexpected to me, but that's the way it's got to be, because there is so much here that I cannot neglect. Tom Steller is going to preach next Sunday to you, and I wish I could be here, so I'll have to get the tape. But I will be in Amsterdam, strengthening the hands of Arab world ministries, missionaries from all over the world, and then come back and won't go away again for the fall. So, today we continue, what do we mean when we eat the Lord's Supper? I called them ordinances. I didn't use the word sacrament. That was intentional. I have used the word sacrament. You've used the word sacrament. I, I avoid it generally because it has a tilt to it, a connotation to it that I don't agree with. Let me read a paragraph for you from a uh, dictionary of theology that catches the tilt of the word sacrament that makes me want to go away from it to the word ordinance. Here's the paragraph. The Latin word sacramentum meant both quote, a thing set apart as sacred, and a military oath of obedience as administered by a commander. The use of this word for baptism and the Lord's Supper affected the thought about these rites, and they tended to be regarded as conveying grace in themselves rather than as relating men through faith to Christ. The issue is, how is grace mediated from God to the human heart for its strength and perseverance? How does that happen 
at the occasion of the Lord's Supper. If you use the word sacrament, historically, you are leaning toward treating the elements as carrying materially some kind of grace. So that when they are consecrated by a duly ordained priest, something happens to them, and when you appropriately eat them, they themselves are carrying that grace into you. You lean that way when you use the word sacrament, historically. If you use the word ordinance, which simply means something Christ ordained, something he instituted, he called it institutions, you lean towards saying, no, there is no material change here, and the eating itself, the material, isn't ministering grace to me. Rather, what's happening with my eating, by faith, I am feeding upon the living Christ and all the benefits he bought for me by his blood and broken body to the nourishment of my soul by the Spirit through faith. Someone asked me at the end of last week's message, in fact, I got more questions in response to last Sunday sermon than I've gotten for any sermon in years. Blew me away. I didn't know you were so interested in the Lord's Supper. One of the questions was, um, quote, Do believers receive an extra or special grace by eating the Lord's Supper? Do believers receive an extra or special grace by eating the Lord's Supper? I'm going to answer that and do it in its place. It comes in a moment in the flow. One of the reasons the series has now lengthened to three is because of those questions. And you can just hold your questions if you don't want to preach all the way through the fall on the Lord's (laughs) Supper. Because one could, of course, and Romans 11 beckons. So here's the review, into which I'm going to put two things, one of which I promised last week, and one of which is an answer to that question. I said there were three meanings to the Lord's Supper. Number one, it is a proclamation of the gospel, verse 26 of the text that was just read, 1 Corinthians 11:26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, Until he comes. Every time we eat the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim it to ourselves to strengthen our faith. And we proclaim it to any unbeliever who's watching to awaken his faith. That's what it is. It's a proclamation of the... Right at this point in the sentence, last week, I said... I'll show you next week, as best I can, that not only the death, but the resurrection is implicit in the Lord's Supper. And the death is clearly here. This is my blood. This is my body. It's broken. It's poured out. This is death. But here also is resurrection. Um, You read, as often as you drink this bread, eat this bread... Drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is, he's alive. 
He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He's reigning until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. So something must have happened between death and reign and coming, namely resurrection. Is it here? Why didn't Paul, since he's going to refer to the second coming, refer to something that enables the second coming to happen, namely the resurrection and ascension? And my argument is, it's so plain here, he didn't have to. So where do I see it? I see it in four words. The first word is the word Lord in verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Now when Paul calls Jesus of Nazareth, Kyrios, Lord, names this the Kyriakos Supper, the Lord's Supper, what we should have in our minds is, here is a designation that carries full divine authority. Here is Jesus being called God. And the reason I feel warranted to say that is because a few months ago, when we got to the end of chapter 10 of Romans, and we were quoting verses 12, 13, 14, we read verses All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and showed that it's a quote from Joel referring to Jehovah, God, Yahweh, and it's referred here to Jesus. Jesus, in Paul's mind, he does not hesitate to say there is a a mysterious, divine oneness, one God, three persons. We're talking about the Son and the Father here. Jesus is Lord, carried for Paul, way more than master or one who can tell you what to do. My inference from that is, God doesn't stay dead. I was in uh, Lexington at a black, reformed conference, Tuesday through yesterday. Speaking four times and listening to lots of preaching. And there were some remarkable and powerful images in that preaching. And one of them was to picture Jesus asleep in the grave. And then, early Sunday morning, he said, I think I've had enough sleep. I think I'll get up. I think I'll now make this belly of this whale sick with me and spit me out. The Lord doesn't stay dead. Death could not hold the Lord. So I'm arguing the word Lord carries the implication death was prelude to resurrection. It's here implicitly. Second word, the word betrayed. In verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Now that word, for anybody who knows just a little bit of the gospel tradition, would call to mind Jesus sitting there saying, one of you will betray me. And them saying, who is it, Lord? And he's saying, 
It is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. What you do, do quickly. Here's a picture of Jesus totally in charge. He knows exactly what's coming down. It is coming down exactly on schedule. It is all written as a script in the Psalms. There will be a betrayer. Jesus knows who it is. He knows who's going to deny him. He knows how many he's going to deny him. He knows when he will repent. He knows a rooster will crow. This Christ is in charge. And if he's in charge, he will rise. I see it in the word thanks. Verse 24. He was betrayed. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. That's amazing. (laughs) He takes bread. He says, this is my body. Crack. Thank you. Listen, Jesus is not thanking God because he's hungry and now has a meal. I don't think Jesus was hungry. I think he lost his appetite way early on Thursday. You don't get hungry a few hours before you're going to be ripped to shreds and hung on a cross. He is not thankful that finally I've got a meal. This Jesus broke it and said to the one who planned the breaking and will in a few hours bruise him, thank you. Now, how can you do that? How can you say thank you to that God who's about to hand you over and turn his face away from you and wrap you up like a piece of meat? Because he knew he would rise. And when he rises, all those for whom he died would praise him and praise his Father forever and ever and ever with ever-increasing joy. That's how he could say, thank you. And I see it finally in the word, broke. Verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Now notice, Judas didn't break the bread. Peter didn't break the bread. And what would have been really symbolically significant, no soldier broke into the room and broke the bread. Jesus broke the bread. And what does that mean? It means John ten seventeen. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I break it. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority 
to take it up again. I have authority to break it. I have authority to put it back together again. Jesus is in charge. Nobody takes his life. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't the scattering apostles. It wasn't the soldiers. It wasn't the Jews. And it wasn't ultimately our sin. It was Christ's authority saying, I now choose to go. I will break this body. I will go to sleep. I will wake up when I feel like waking up. And nobody in heaven or hell will be able to stop me. And if that's implied in the word, I broke it, the resurrection is here. So I conclude in fulfillment of my promise to you last week that I would try to show you that until he comes, didn't omit the stage of the resurrection. It is implicitly and powerfully here if you understand these words. Uh, We're still reviewing from last week. That was the first of three points last week. The second point last week was, it is not only a proclamation, it is a remembrance. Verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. When you proclaim something, you're doing it into somebody's head, ears. And in this case, to bring something to mind called remembrance. And so the the second meaning of the Lord's Supper is that when the gospel is preached, we are to remember him eating with us, remember him being betrayed willingly, remember him giving thanks to the one who planned his death, remember him breaking the symbol of his own body, remember him pouring out his blood, remember him sealing a new covenant. And the one that's meant most to me in the last few hours of meditation is this one. Remember him singing a hymn before they went out into the garden. Remember that statement? After they had sung a hymn, they went out. I would pay any amount of money to be outside the window and hear him start that song. I would pay any amount of money for those five minutes. A few years ago, I wrote a Mother's Day poem. I wish I had thought to bring it along. It just occurred to me as I was preaching in the first service, so I didn't have it. I wrote a Mother's Day poem called, Where Was Mary? And it says he was in an upper room. So in my imaginary poem, Mary, who's not among the twelve, is in the lower room. And of course, in those days, there's no glass in the windows. There was no glass, period. And the windows are open And she's on her knees knowing what's coming. She's no dummy. She knows what's coming down this night and tomorrow morning. And she's on her knees praying for her son. And suddenly she hears a song. And it's her boy. She taught him this song. In other words, remember. Let the Lord suffer. Remember. Bring to your mind memories of these things. Let let yourself go back into the Gospels and walk with him through Gethsemane. Remember the blood dripping down his face. Remember the mob and the clubs. Remember him putting the ear back on. Remember, 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 remember. And in your remembrance, just love him like crazy. 
This word remember here, you know, you know when Paul wrote this, he did not mean have an intellectual recall of facts. That is not what's supposed to happen at the Lord's table, merely. It's calling to mind the the beauties of Christ, the character of Christ, the acts of Christ, the glories of Christ, so that we will love Christ and savor Christ and feed on Christ, which leads me to the third meaning last week. Come to me. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 6.35, from which I argued that the Lord's Supper is a by faith feeding upon all that God is for us in Christ for the strengthening of our souls by grace. And that's last week's sermon. And now is where we should answer the question. Do believers receive an extra special grace by eating the Lord's Supper? Well, here's the way I want to answer that question. God has provided, I praise him for it, many means to sustain and strengthen the souls of his children by faith. God has provided many means to strengthen your soul by faith. Each means is a gracious gift from God, mediating, sustaining grace to our needy hearts. All of them. But I do not see the grace mediated through the Lord's Supper as essentially different from the grace mediated by all the other means. For example, grace strengthens my soul by faith when I meditate on the scriptures. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when I see the saints loving each other sacrificially and thus letting their light so shine. I am so strengthened. I am so heartened. I receive so much grace when you love each other. My soul is strengthened by grace through faith when I see the heavens declaring the glory of God. My soul is strengthened by grace through faith when fellow Christians pray for me. Oh, how I feel it. I mean, how else do you explain? At least I'm going to live here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take it this way. You're sitting in a motel room. You're tired. You're, we should be home. And you've got another couple of hours of talks to give. And uh, spiritually, you're drained. And you're not feeling affections appropriate to the glories you're supposed to talk about. And suddenly, for absolutely no discernible reason, you're thrilled with the gospel. And I have, I have paused at those moments and kind of, what was that? Where did that come from? Why am I happy? 
Why am I excited about tonight's meeting? And I just get out and say, whoever you are, thank you. Thank you. It's like an arrow in Lexington. So, my soul is strengthened when my brothers and sisters pray for me. Grace strengthens my soul by faith when a brother or a sister exhorts me, admonishes me, corrects me, hears my confession of sin, and then encourages me. And then, of course, fresh grace strengthens my soul by faith when I remember Jesus at the Lord's table and savor all that he did for me when he died. So the answer is yes. Now, I have one more point to make today, but I'll tell you what the next three points are so that in two weeks you'll be ready. Number four meaning of the Lord's Supper is savoring the new covenant. Number five meaning is the Lord's Supper is a call to love the church. And number six meaning is the Lord's Supper is a call to self-examination. And all those strange words you've heard read twice now from verse 27 to 34 of chapter 11 are where we'll go and work. And all your questions about your children... I will try to say something about. That's a big issue in this church. It's not a controversial issue. It's just a big issue. What should I as a parent do? Every kid who grows up in a Christian home at age three wants one of those when it goes by. So we need to talk about that a little bit and then distribute some material probably. So last point, four. The Lord's Supper as a savoring of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is a savoring of the new covenant. I get this from verse 25. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. There's the phrase I'm I'm laying hold of. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he, again, did not mean... Just be factually, intellectually aware there's such a thing in Jeremiah 31, 31 called the New Covenant and have that in your head when you eat. That is not what he's talking about. He's saying, when you put this cup to your lips, let there be, as a physical savoring of the fruit of the vine, let there be a spiritual savoring of the glorious promises of the New Covenant. So let's go to Jeremiah 31 for a few minutes. Take your Bible, if you'd like to follow, I hope you will, and go to Jeremiah chapter 31. It's one of those big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Jeremiah 31. 31. It's easy to remember. If you want to know, where's a, where's a new covenant promise? 31, 31. 31, 31. That's easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let's start reading there. Keep your ears peeled. For four promises. Here we go. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So there's the word, new covenant. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's referring to the Mosaic law, Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai. 
My covenant, which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Promise number one. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Promise number two. I will be their God and they will be my people. Promise number three. No longer shall each one say to his neighbor or to his brother, know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will all know me. There's the third promise. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Fourth promise, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So let's take those one at a time. And here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand what Paul wants us to think, feel, and mean when we take the cup and put it to our lips. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I'm arguing what he wants us to do is as we savor the juice, he wants us to spiritually savor the promises that the blood bought. The new covenant promises. Number one, I'm not going to take them in that order. I'm going to take them in this order. Number one, forgiveness of sins. Jesus connects the new covenant with forgiveness of sins like this. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So every time you take the cup and put it to your lips, you should think this signifies the outpouring of blood, which is the foundation, the basis, the ground, the purchase price of the forgiveness of my sins. According to the promise, I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Savor the promise of forgiveness, blood bought by Jesus. Number two, God will write the law on our hearts is the promise of the new covenant. Now, Bethlehem, get this. Get this. This is what distinguishes us from all other religions, including Judaism. The old covenant is the law written on tables of stone. Presented to fleshly people who are rebels against God, will not submit to God's law, indeed cannot, Romans 8, 7. And the response when the stony tablets of duty are presented to such hearts is one of two things. Either get out of my face, I'll live like I want, call that libertinism if you want, And the other is, I'll do this. I'll work hard. I'll measure up. I'll provide a righteousness for myself. Just tell me what to do. Call that legalism. That's the only two possibilities for a rebellious heart. The new covenant doesn't take the stony tablets, put them in front of a stony heart and say, do your duty. It, by the Spirit, goes inside where the rebellion is, crushes it, grinds it, and on the new, soft, fleshy heart, writes the law of God, which is an image for this. Christ did not die to purchase 
a law. He died to purchase a life. The Spirit comes in and He creates life. And where there was once duty, 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 and failure, 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 there is now delight, delight, delight in the will of God and the person of God. And until that happens, you don't have Christianity. And the big question for everybody in this room right now is, has it happened to you? Have you experienced the conversion called, I will write my law on their hearts? The evidence of it is, once you regarded the will of God, the way of God, the person of God as foolish or boring or something to be mocked or rejected or walked away from or yawned over, and now there's at least the quickening and awakening of, this is good, this is sweet, I love this, I'd like to grow in this. Then you know, then you're a Christian. But all this duty stuff, Give me some more lists. I'll do it. Or get out of my face with your lists. I write my lists. Either way, you're a goner. The gospel is new covenant. Christ comes. He dies. And he purchases not law, but life. Not just forgiveness, but transformation. Not just justification, but also sanctification. Not just pardon, but also purity. Not just God's favor, but also my faith. Where'd your faith come from? Do you think that hardened, rebellious, resistant, self-reliant, fallen sinners give rise to this beautiful thing called childlike trust? No way. That was a gift and it had to be bought for sinners like us. It had to be paid for by sinners like us. And it was bought with the cup of blessing which I bless. This is the new covenant in my blood. By this blood, my faith was purchased. Oh, give him glory, folks. If you are a believer, if your heart leans toward Christ this morning, fall on your face and say, Not just thank you for the consequences of faith, but thank you for the faith. He bought it for you at the price of his own blood. Third promise in the new covenant, all the covenant people shall know God. See that in verse 34? They shall all know me. They shall all know me. This is big. This is really big for a church. Here's what it means. Every member of the new covenant people, the new Israel, the church, knows God. Knows Him. Loves Him. Trusts Him. Has a relationship called, I know you. You know me. I know you. Everyone. Here's the implication. No longer, unlike in the Old Covenant, no longer are the covenant people defined by the children born to the covenant people. Did you hear that? No longer are the covenant people 
defined merely by the children born to the covenant people. That is why we don't baptize babies. Very simply. It's not because of a, a few scattered verses in the New Testament that says believe and be baptized. That's helpful. The fundamental reason is the new covenant creates a people. And all the people in the new covenant know the Lord. And when a baby is born to one of those people, you pray, you minister, you love, you teach that by grace they may come to know the Lord. And when the evidence is there that they know the Lord, the sign of belonging to the covenant people is given. They do not belong to the covenant people by virtue of their physical birth. They belong to the covenant people by virtue of the law being written on their hearts, their sins being forgiven, and knowing the Lord. It's just clear. To Baptists, anyway. <laughs> I made you laugh for this reason. I love Presbyterians <laughs> and Methodists and Anglicans who don't endorse. I love them all in different ways. But this is what we see and this is what we practice. And then if there has to be a line, we'll love across the lines. Is that okay? You hear that? I'm not hammering anybody here because I know you're from all over the map on, on this issue, from other churches and even those of you who go to this church. I really believe strongly in this, though, and don't have any intention of us practicing anything else but Believers, baptism. I'll close with the last promise. It is uh, where did I lose it? I think I skipped one. Write the law in the hearts. Here it is. I will be their God, and they will be my people. When your sins are forgiven and the law is written on your heart and you know the Lord, you belong to the covenant people. And I love the picture of us standing at the Lord's table and looking out on an assembly like this and saying, we're God's people. He is our God and we are his people. He is our God and we are his people. That's a really powerful thing and it means at least two things. All of his power and all of his infinite wisdom and all of his unsearchable knowledge conspires to work for my good and make everything work together for my good. That's what it means to have God as your God. And secondly, it means that in all of that, he presents himself to us as our treasure for our enjoyment. You need to really feel that God himself enjoyed is the end of the gospel. You know, sometimes we just take a little piece of the gospel like forgiveness. Isn't it great to be forgiven? Or justification. Isn't it great to be declared righteous? And, and we don't think, why? I mean, who cares about forgiveness, right? Unless 
The absence of forgiveness is keeping you from the person you love. I mean, the only reason I want Noel to forgive me is not because forgiveness feels good, but because I don't like the ice in the air. I want her back. And I don't mean I want her to turn her back. I want her front at the kitchen sink. She's got her back to me. And I walk up, kiss her on the back of the neck. She goes, jerks away. I said, whoa, I need to be forgiven. (laughs) What did I say? I will find out. (laughs) And apologize because this is not a good relationship. But do you see the point? The point is that forgiveness itself is nothing. It's the person. I mean, if she weren't there, what forgiveness between two people if one of them vanishes? I'm simply saying that when he says, I'll be your God, he's saying the ultimate thing. I'll forgive your sins is a sweet, wonderful, precious thing worth living for and dying for. If it's followed by, and when you're forgiven, I'm your treasure. I'm your satisfaction. I'm your God. So that's where we end at the Lord's table. And I just close by saying, oh, Bethlehem. Live the preciousness of the Lord's table all the time. Receive forgiveness from Jesus by faith all the time. Enjoy the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, causing duties to become delights by writing them there all the time. Love knowing Him. When you walk out of here in two minutes... Talk to him. Cross the parking lot, in the car. Talk to him. Dedicate the lunch to him. Dedicate the nap to him. I'm going to do that. (laughs) Dedicate the ball game to him, if you can. All things are possible to him who believes. (laughs) Dedicate... Everything to him and just talk to him all the way through because you know him. And then count it the treasure of your life that he's your God. The cup of the new covenant. Savor these promises every time you drink. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. I know there are people in this room right now for whom these promises, for whom the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the forgiveness of sins by a substitute Savior is a foreign language and sounds either boring or stupid. I know they're here. I just want to pray for them before we go. Please know, you in that category, that you are loved by me, by this church, and Christ is drawing you. That's why you're here. You came to this message by divine providence and have sat under the truth of the gospel that you might be drawn to life and forgiveness and everlasting joy. Don't push it away. 
nurture it through the afternoon. Or just come on up here when we're done and let's pray together. That would be even better.